0: Coming to you from LARB HQ in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Colin Marshall, sitting down today with Steph Cha, author of a new Los Angeles noir. It's probably been a while since one has come out and especially gotten this much attention. It's called Follow Her Home. Steph, the main character in this book, Juniper Song, is thrust into a Philip Marlowe-type situation. What possibilities first came to your mind when you thought, what if I put a 20-something lady today into a Marlowe-type situa- situation? What does the modern world, modern Los Angeles, give me that it didn't give Raymond Chandler in his day?
1: So in terms of story, um, I that came second, mm. I would say. I wanted to create a contemporary atmosphere that was accurate in the way that Chandler's L.A. was accurate back in the '40s and '50s, Um, and when I I mean, I read Marlowe. I mean, I read Chandler when I was in college. I read all of his books, and I loved them. And I particularly loved what they did with L.A. because I grew up here, and there was just something so intensely atmospheric and concrete and definitive about his voice and the the way he writes about Los Angeles that I thought originally someone should do that. with contemporary L.A. Um, this thought obviously came to me when I was in college and first reading him, and I later learned that people have been doing that. But I did want there to be a kind of L.A. noir with a Korean-American bent because that's just been my experience growing up here. And I know a lot of other Korean-Americans living in L.A. who are born here, second generation. And um, it's a very particular experience that I want to describe. So... Um, At some point, I thought that there was this kind of hole in literature that, and I thought that I might be able to fill it, so I decided to write it with that in mind. Um, I think also just the incredible diversity of this city and the sprawling aspect, which, I mean, has only gotten bigger since Chandler was writing, and I wanted to kind of capture that modern L.A., where... um, you can't just go around calling people fairies. And, um, and so I wanted to do that kind of update, um, a little bit with a feminist bent mm-hmm. because that's another part that I didn't agree with with Chandler. is like, it's a very misogynist vision. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of the project. And so I decided to write this noir and then I wanted to write about, um, yellow fever and different things that are kind of, um, linked and kind of noirish about the Asian American experience in LA
0: reading Chandler getting that atmosphere of Los Angeles that he described that he that he built up maybe created to some extent did you think to yourself yeah that's Los Angeles or i think the atmosphere is different now and i need to capture a new one
1: i think i thought both at the same time i mean it's very recognizable i think some of the gritty LA i mean it's not And I should say that that's not an L.A. that I necessarily grew up with. Like, I didn't see anything particularly seedy or strange growing up in the suburbs. But I think Chandler really defined L.A. in a way that's lasted, um, you know, through present day. Um, That kind of dirtiness um, that you associate with L.A. and Hollywood, uh, that's still part of the vision of L.A., And it's not always accurate, but sometimes it is, as it is about, you know, I think most cities will have that kind of underbelly. Mm. But, um, so I, I think that has lasted. And, um, I, I actually saw a list of definitive LA novels recently. Somebody sent it to me. Mm. Um, and somebody sent it to me because The Big Sleep was on there. But I also noticed it was a list of, like, 15, 20 books, and I think, like, five of them were noir, Mm. um there was like Mosley and Elroy and it just it just makes sense that it would be that way. Um, on the other hand, I um, I don't think every aspect is recognizable. I mean, LA has changed so much over the uh, over the last century that like a certain, you know, I think one element is like the in- incredible diversity of this city and uh, and how I mean, I repeating myself but like how how big it's become and how pocketed mm-hmm. um I think that was starting to be true, but the breadth of Los Angeles do, of mm-hmm. present day doesn't really come across in Chandler's novels. Like, for an, an example is, like, if you look at the downtown that Chandler lived in, I think the tallest building was, like, City Hall. You know, you right. want to recognize the skyline. Um, and he, he makes references to uh the occasional mexican who gets that designation like is the mexican and who won't really have many lines um so i don't know if chandler really anticipated a city with this heavy an immigrant population Mm. um he definitely did not live in a world with um so many asian american immigrants um because like for instance the korean american immigration wave came in the 70s That's like when my parents came in and uh You know, I I know very few third-generation Koreans. Uh, The ones I would know are children. Um, And so I think uh, that particular population certainly isn't captured or even imagined in Chandler's work.
0: The writer Richard Meltzer has this phrase that I've always liked. He talks about the world moving into Los Angeles, especially after the 1984 Olympics. And... That, that cultural breadth is something that le- that I don't recognize in Chandler's Los Angeles. I was mm-hmm. like, I moved to Los Angeles because there's every culture here. Yeah. This is a place with very, very few cultures in it, ultimately. It was still an interesting one uh, in his day. But we have Los Angeles noir novels. We've long had them. We've long had immigrant experience novels, Asian-American experience novels, Korean-American experience novels. It seems like, I mean, when did it occur to you that it was possible to hybridize those? I mean, do you think of this as a project of hybridizing those forms?
1: Yeah, I very much wanted to do that. Um, I think what it was is that I didn't want to write an explicit identity novel. I think something something in me rebelled against that, at least for my first book. I think I may yet write an identity novel because I find um, Asian American identity interesting. I mean, and it's something that I live with. But I think because uh, most writers, you know, writers who are white do not have to write an identity novel. Um, they can just write a novel and it can be about a character who is white and nobody pays attention to that. That's not a salient mm. point. So I really wanted to write a novel where it wouldn't make sense if you just swapped out the main character for a white character, right. but where it wasn't all about the character's Koreanness. Mm. Um, and I, and, and, I have liked novels that are about characters' ethnicity. I think those are very—that's a very strong, um, that's a very strong genre. But um, I wanted to collapse the two because noir. There's always something going on that where the identities of the characters are there and felt, but they're not the main thrust. Mm-hmm. And I think I really wanted to do that for this project. And I also think um, noir is a particularly good way to explore identity in that way, anyway, because um, the private detective is kind of an observer character, uh, and you know things can happen to her, but she ultimately just just kind of narrates and takes you through what's going on in in the particular setting. Like uh, the private detective will go all over a city. I, that's one of my favorite things about a private detective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can see it through her eyes, but it's not about who she is mm-hmm.
0: 100%. I mentioned off mic before recording that my girlfriend read this book before I did, and she expressed relief that oh good, there's no scene where the Korean-American remembers her embarrassment at bringing gimbap to, to school for lunch mm-hmm. that, her, that her immigrant mom packed. And, and I feel that way too. I've read a few identity novels myself, and The first few times I read that kind of scene, I was like, oh, that really must have been awkward. And then it became started to feel like a cliche. And now it's not just a cliche, but I don't think kids are embarrassed if they bring kimbap to school. They want to bring it to school. I would want to bring it to school. I mean,
1: I have have kimbap experiences. uh, When my mom packed me kimbap in high school, uh, she would way (laughs) overpack. So I had tons and tons of it. And... uh, I gave I gave a lot away, right. and it was a total hit. You weren't embarrassed; hit. it was there. It was yeah. a total hit. People loved it. I mean, I've had embarrassing things packed for lunch. Like mm. there was a phase where I really liked those, like Costco dumplings, mm. and that's I mean, that's not something that only Asians eat right. or anything. No doubt. But they smell really bad. Yes. So I had embarrassing embarrassing experience with those. Mm. But yeah, and I think like the keep up to school moment is probably very prevalent in um, this kind of literature because it does happen to everyone. Mm. Like it's funny. Like there are all these strange stories that are shared by whole populations, and that's definitely one of them.
0: Mm. I, mean, I think of other generations of Asian-American identity novel writers like uh, Chong Rae Lee, who I think is probably 50 or so now, and probably was embarrassed to bring that stuff in, the, in his lunch, but it's like, it's correct me if I'm wrong, or this is too broad, but it's kind of, that stuff is now cool, or cool in a way it wouldn't have been in 1970.
1: I think so. I think, um, Well, okay, so I'm trying to think what it's like to be, like, 10 years old now. Mm -hmm. Because I know what it's like to be in my 20s -hmm. now. And I wonder if it's also different for kids who are much younger. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there is a celebration, especially in, like east side of Los Angeles of things like diversity and trying new things and experiencing other cultures, I don't know how much that holds in the playground. On the other hand, when I was in elementary school, I was the only Korean kid in my class. Um, that's no longer true. In, in the and, valley,
0: uh, in near Los Angeles, you were the only Korean kid in your class. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. That, that I wouldn't have expected. That's. Uh,
1: I, I went to private okay. elementary school, so I think that might have been part of it. But even that school, I know there's like a lot more Koreans because mm-hmm. I have a I have a brother who's twelve years younger than me and went kind of the same path. He has a lot more Korean classmates. Mm-hmm.
0: Now the protagonist of your novel, your your Marlowe, Juniper Song, she makes, she makes the claim many times that she is no Marlowe herself, and a lot of the book is about her, the differences in her her experiences and Marlowe's preparing them for. You know the same type of situation—murders, crimes, conspiracy—that that sort of thing. Dark alleys, warehouses. But Marlowe always seemed to be—he he, he kept on an, on an eerily even keel, as I recall. Uh, song, as as she goes by, she she seems to quick to reach emotional heights. You know, she's got a, a higher emotional amplitude vastly than Marlowe. Was that an intentional, I want to make them very different in this way?
1: Yeah, and part of that is that um, this is an amateur detective. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, I, I wanted, when I was writing it, every juncture where something major happened, I would think, well, how would I react to this? How would my friends react to this? And it just turns out that the way... Marlowe reacts to things is strongly informed by what he does for a living, for one thing. But also, I mean, he's just unrealistically cool a lot of the time, um, which is fine. And I, I, I love that about Marlowe and those novels. I mean, there's this hard-bittenness that is... You want to root for that. Um, but I definitely wanted to write this story in a way that um, the average 20-something woman or man could relate to because, you know, when these things happen to kind of normal people who don't do this for a living, uh, they're going to react in vastly different ways. And I mean, I, I had fun with that. Mm. I think, uh, that was just like a fun part of writing it. Mm. There's a moment in, um, Twin Peaks, the beginning of Twin Peaks where, uh, where the kind of naivish, um, police officer, uh, sees sees the murdered body and just like breaks down in tears when he's supposed to be photographing it I, I find that like very touching I find that kind of human reaction um, it, it stands out in this kind of thing because we're so conditioned to see people kind of coming across death and spoil and be completely you know unbothered and so I wanted to bring in somebody who was kind of reacting to this in a way that would ring true
0: Right, the action of Follow Her Home happens in a, in a world where there seem to be no Marlows, where it's not possible for somebody exactly like Philip Marlowe to exist. What other layers of classic noir, the classic noir-type reality, did you want to strip away or did you find uh, not very useful, or did you find useful to take away? What, what are the old assumptions that you wanted to get rid of from noir?
1: Well, the big one is the femme fatale, mm. and I wanted to play with that figure in a major way. Um The Femme Fatale character is... It's a great one. I mean, it's... I mean, I'm just thinking of cinema and, like, all the great... Like, Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. I mean, she's so great. And, like, they exude this charisma and darkness that is very attractive. On the other hand, it's a very misogynist trope. Um, And I think... I mean, it's weird how... And I talk about this in my novel at some point. Um, It's weird how a woman can't just be beautiful. She has to be beautiful and sinful or tainted in some way, Mm -hmm. often evil and murderous. Um, Whereas, you know, a man is handsome and that's like just part of it. But so I wanted to play with that figure. And I have a lot of women in this novel. And, you know, some are bad, some are good. But I wanted to kind of upend the idea that like a femme fatale is like absolutely necessary for a noir novel to work because it is kind of a little bit hateful to have that figure in like every novel, like Chandler did. Hmm.
0: Well, you, bottom line, you don't want to use the same type of figure in every novel, no matter what, yeah. even if it's non hateful. It's yeah. like it just well, you know, there's certain things are cliches in noir. You didn't, and I, it seems like you know, there's a character, uh, Laurie Lim introduced in this book who. Like a few elements in the book comes in and seems to be a classic noir mm. element like a femme fatale and then you know I, as as I read the book I saw enough of enough of the elements get de get de-broadened or get surprised by what you you made them into if not the opposite of the of the classic noir image then you complicated them um you know eventually I started seeing the pattern and wanted to see what you would do with everything that seemed classically noirish um mm. but did you did you see that as a task of yours to make something to bring in elements, characters, what have you, that seemed like old noir and then kind of pull the rug out from that?
1: Yeah, I definitely wanted to do that. I mean, and like I said, I, I, like I've said several times, I really love that genre and I like the idea of playing with it. I think it's hard to do a straight noir these days. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a, it, it, it's a, it's a genre that gets parodied often for good reason. Um and it, I think it's hard to do with a straight face um, without playing with various elements or adding, like, particular twists. Um, I mean, I, I, I've i noticed, like, some of the noirs that I've read recently are, like, Motherless Brooklyn. You have a character with Tourette's. Uh, uh, what's, what's it called? Um, oh, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, which I haven't read. Um, but that's an autism noir right
0: right so he has asperger's or i guess he's he's far far along enough on the spectrum that things don't look the same to him as they do for us
1: yeah i haven't read it um and turn of mind which is not totally noir but it involves um alzheimer's Hmm. and i mean i think uh you just can't play this genre straight anymore Hmm. and i think that's good i think you get a lot of like the the two of those three novels that i've read are very good novels um but I, I yeah, I consciously pulled a lot of stuff from Chandler, and I do it pretty explicitly also, and I do it because I like those tropes, but I also enjoy playing with them and subverting them because I think that's the fun of writing in this genre now
0: and one of the less subtle one of the more subtle uh, subversions it seems like you've done here is that. I mean it's been a while since I've you've you've no doubt read more classic Noir novels than I have, so tell me if this is true. But you know, the 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 main characters or the narrators, if if they were identical, could be they could be shambolic or kind of sleazy themselves, just not great guys, but they tended to be reliable narrators in a purely literary technical sense. Yeah. I get the I get the feeling, not that Juniper Sung, your protagonist, is an unreliable narrator per se, but she you didn't want to make her perfectly reliable. It feels like a not a lot of the book, but maybe thirty percent of what she says—throw a number out there—is is colored in a way that suggests we might want to take her with a grain of salt sometimes. Mm-hmm. That this is getting a little bit abstract, but do you, does that ring true to you as what you wanted to make her?
1: Yeah, definitely. I wanted her to be a character who doesn't necessarily know herself hundred percent, and I think—and um, this is kind of different from Nora. I mean, she's a younger character than Marlowe. And she's somebody who is kind of lost in the scheme of things without really acknowledging that. Mm. I mean, she's somebody who uh, doesn't really have any goals, uh, feels disconnected from family and friends, mm. but likes to think that she's 100% in charge of everything all the time.
0: Why does she think that?
1: I think it's just a need for strength. Mm. Um a dislike of vulnerability. I guess you could put it that way also. Mm. Um, And I feel that way sometimes that like, you know, I I really feel it's important to feel that I'm in charge of things or that I know what I'm doing with my life. Mm. And I think when you feel like that very intensely, it means that you're not. Um, And I wanted to have that kind of element of being kind of adrift in your twenties to be part of her character. Mm.
0: 20 something adriftness is something the coverage of this book has, has has brought up and do you think that twenty something adriftness is more in the zeitgeist now than it's been before it seems like people people are talking i'm in my 20s too but you know you know people are talking more about the way our generation our age group is supposedly completely lost what's what's going on there
1: oh boy um i think i mean it's probably because None of us have jobs anymore. (laughs) Um, That's true. (laughs) I mean, that's a lot of it. I think, uh, you know, when 2008 hit us, like, I was in school at the time. Um, Most of the people I know were in school or getting out of school around that time. I mean, I graduated college in 07. um, And I think, like, we were kind of hit hard. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I understand why that's now in the culture. People want to... Um, Oh, there was that Joel Stein article in Time (laughs) Yes uh, Like calling us like a bunch of narcissists And I don't know I mean, there's all this You know, there are so many essays about girls That show like, I mean, people just like talking about it now Um, It's a popular topic I mean, I think there's I think anytime there's going to be like a Scrabble for resources And Mm. everyone's kind of feeling desperate I mean, there's a little bit of venom between generations and a desire to hate on certain types of people in broad strokes, and I mean, I think that that's just more visible than it has been before. I mean, I almost want to blame girls entirely because I feel like half of the stuff I read about this is like framed in terms of girls. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: it's an so, easy it's, target. Yeah, this point, it's an certainly. easy
1: target. Everyone's unlikable, but um, I don't know. I mean, I would have thought that. 20 somethings were always like a little bit adrift but i think it's right. becoming more so now because people are staying in school longer and not finding jobs that can support them in which with which they can support themselves or pay loans back and uh, so we are all reduced functionally to some sort of childishness just because mm-hmm. um, we don't have the resources we need
0: and it's it's in this type of deep 20 something Semi-employedness that we find Song when she's thrown into, she's thrown into this noir plot. I mean, she, she, she's approached by her best friend who says, "I think my dad has a mistress." He thinks it's this character Laurie Lim, this possible femme fatale. It seems certainly like that when we when we first see her, and it deepens. You know, the proverbial rabbit hole we go, we go down. It things turn out to be more sinister than they seem. How sinister? How? bad how malevolent did you think it was realistic to ultimately make the goings on that, that are revealed in this book I mean there's only so there's only so much evil you can put in a book before things get implausible you certainly don't cross that line but what was that how did you frame that in your mind like how bad how purely bad do I want anybody in this cast of characters to turn out to be do you know what I mean
1: yeah i absolutely know what you mean and i mean i whenever i read mysteries or watch kind of crime-type movies or shows, Mm. there's always that question of, is this at all believable? Mm. Um, And I think it comes down to just, if you set up the motivations correctly, um, you can make most things plausible, right? Mm. I mean, and this is what I look for all the time when I read or view. Actually, I mean, I have this weird habit of, like, reading horror store uh, horror movie synopses on huh. Wikipedia sure it's really weird like I don't like horror movies but I'm so, for some reason like fascinated by that goriness. Yeah. but I'm like always unsatisfied when I'm like well I don't know why this happened right. um, so I think as long as you can set that up it's it's plausible um, and I feel like I feel like this comes directly from a lecture I heard in like my American detective fiction class about like the kind of thing that would make somebody, you know, secrets that people will kill for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we heard, we talked about this one news story maybe where uh, a f- football player um, had sex with a, a classmate who later turned out to be a boy. And I think this football player, maybe some other people, like, getting together to kill this person, which is so crazy, but it was... But like the reason was there. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible reason, obviously. But like you can kind of get behind the psychology of it, um, even though it's this totally crazy thing. I mean, totally crazy things happen all the time. If you read, if if you like read like about the kinds of murders that happen in this country, um, and I think uh, as long as you can set that up, it's plausible. I mean, I didn't want it to be the kind of book where there's just like a bloodbath for no reason. But I kind of went with, um, well, what are some weird psychological things I can set up, and like what would come out of that? Right.
0: I'm thinking of all the characters in follow her home, and we have Song, we have Luke, the friend that says I think my dad has a mistress. We have his father, uh, the, the, the eminent lawyer who may or may not have a mistress. Uh, we have we have Diego, Song's uh, ex-boyfriend. We have a rival private investigator, a, a classic noir type of character. We have, uh, I mean the. The list goes on, but I'm thinking of all the characters and I'm thinking, which, who is the bad guy? And I, there's one character who is definitely crazy, but no one I can label for sure bad. Does my reading make sense to you there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think of it as having like a couple of bad guys, but I didn't, I didn't leave anyone to kind of rot with no, Every character has um, something you can latch on to and feel a little Mm -hmm. compassion for. I think um, if you don't have that, that's when it gets cartoonish. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't just have someone be evil for no reason. It doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. unless... I mean, I guess it sometimes makes sense. I guess people are evil for no reason. But I don't find that as compelling. So I really wanted to make it so that anyone who does a bad thing, you kind of see why they did it. And it's either to, you know, like... People do bad things for good reasons. Sometimes uh, they're not; those good reasons are often paired with extreme selfishness or cowardice. Mm. But um, you know, sometimes you're looking out for somebody else, or um, or you're trying to do right by somebody, and mm. there's just no right way to do that.
0: Mm. And Song is is quite quick to see villains, is she not? I mean, she once she sets her sights on somebody has that she decides is bad that's that's when she is the least cold-blooded of all right
1: yeah mm. no she um yeah she quickly she quickly identifies villains and i think part of that is um that she's coming into this with the idea that she's in a mystery now mm. and in a mystery there are bad guys right. and you have to be able to spot them and that's like the whole idea behind a mystery i mean i wanted this to be um a book in which like she starts out just in her normal day-to-day and then um gets knocked out which is the which is the beginning of the mystery part and then after that she's like she sees herself as part of this kind of philip Marlowe esque world where certain things are supposed to happen and certain people are supposed to be certain ways and that's not always correct but um but i wanted her to go in with that kind of viewpoint
0: and she does, yes, you mentioned, get knocked out in the way that Marla would. But the first time she does, she wakes up on Larchmont and Beverly by the old cuckoo-roo. Now, yeah, now a, Chipotle, a Chipotle, I think. But <laughs> it's sort of like the Los Angeles of today, you can get knocked out in, but you'll wake up by a Chipotle or by a cuckoo I mean, there's a certain, like... Does the Los Angeles now seem a little cheaper than Chandler's?
1: Yeah, and I, I, I had I, I had fun writing that scene because I think this survived the cut, but uh, I talk about, like, the cuckoo chicken kind of, like, looking down at her. Um I mean I always thought that Cuckoo Chicken was just really funny. It kinda of cracks me <laughs> up. I don't see it that much anymore. But um yeah, it's a kind of place with um where that can happen, right? Where like there are there are bus benches everywhere and they're always gonna be plastered with posters or under, you know, different logos. I didn't I, I didn't go too much into any of this, but uh, I wanted that to be part of the background for sure.
0: Mm. Song says something toward the end of the book. I forget the exact phrasing, but she you know, she's not a player in this game, she's a reader. And so much of what she, how she perceives the situation, these murders, these crimes, these people and places and things she has to find, she perceives, as you've said, in terms of noir novels, in terms of other books she's read. I wonder how much do you think that's to her advantage as a, as as the protagonist of this book to see so much framed in 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 such literary terms.
1: I think it certainly helps her um, in that um, her knowledge of noir is kind of a substitute for any real training, at least in her mind. I mean, she's not the most competent person, uh, or she's not as competent as she thinks she is, but, um, you know, she kind of uses Marlowe as this guide. Um, and using Marlowe as a guide is probably not a good idea in everyday life. Um, it is helpful to her, and it helps her get in and out of certain situations, but and helps her to navigate. Um, but... I think it's to her advantage in that it helps her mm. um, navigate this world. But, you know, on the other hand, she does not come out on top in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, she has to... She, I mean, a lot of this is the hand she's dealt. But her, her kind of literary mindedness, I don't think... Um, it doesn't save her from anything. It doesn't save anybody else. Um, I think it it's a tool only. Um, and for that, it's useful.
0: There's, there's a scene that really expresses to me Song as, as a reader. It's in, I guess you'd call it a subplot, when she's remembering the time that she suspected that her younger sister iris was having an affair with her teacher teacher she goes to find the teacher the teacher's not home but she's in his she she finds her way into his room like a true investigator would and snoops around and sees he has what does she say his his bookshelves have some books on asian history some korean english dictionaries lolita and that that Crystallizes a lot of it for her right there. Here, okay, we've got a fetishist on our hands, and I was thinking, geez, I've got a and English dictionary, I've got Asian <laughs> history books. Like, I don't have Lolita, but I've got other to book off. Uh, you know, how far, how far would I be from being? What, what does what does Song see this this teacher as?
1: Well, are those the only books on your bookshelf?
0: No, I have <laughs> hundreds of them. Is were these were these the only books on this yeah, guy's shelf? I oh, think okay. That was the idea I've, that it's like okay. all that
1: he's interested in is? Oh. Um, kind of Asian history I think I said he had like maybe like a Murakami novel or something Mm -hmm. I mean and this is something that's kind of hard to define I don't think uh, an an Asian fetishist looks only one way Mm -hmm. but I mean I've encountered several just by growing up in LA and I studied East Asian studies and Japanese in college and you do come across like a certain type who is like so who loves Asian women as a part of loving this other part of the world just in general. And it's kind of this strange reductive sort of vision of women. Um, And so, I mean, I kind of laid that, I I laid out his room with all these signals that he's just like very interested in everything Asian. Um, Because I think that's, I mean, there's like a lot of this is wrapped up in like Japan, strangely more than like Korea. And, uh, Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Certainly, in the last thirty years, Japan maybe that may change very soon.
1: Yeah, but yeah, the the like fascination with anime mm-hmm. and um, it becomes this, and no, no one thing is definitive. And obviously, if if you pe- like, people are interested in these things, and they are things that are you can legitimately be interested in. Like I've been, I've had interest in anime and all that, um, but it becomes weird when you combine that with your. A very personal preference for like one kind of woman Hmm. and i think that happens with asian women for some reason more than it does with you know any other race it seems like
0: yeah I i was going to say i've known a lot of guys who are for example mad about redheads only a redhead will do the redheads don't complain i've known guys who were only attracted to black women uh when they didn't hear anything about it no one would bring it up it'd be like robert de niro no one says no one points that out about him but it's clearly true um but if a guy a guy who only likes asian women will not declare that for fear he's going to be called a fetishist culturally what do you think is going on there
1: and i should clarify that i i mean i'm getting married to a white man uh i it's not that i have any problems with uh, Interracial relationships with Asian women. Um, I guess I
0: should put out that my girlfriend yeah, yeah, is from Korea, say, right yeah. there. So we're are we are we well placed or poorly placed to be talking about this right now?
1: <laughs> I think we're probably well placed because I'm yeah. sure you've thought about it, right? It, it's I mean, not it's, far
0: from my mind. Yeah. That's true.
1: I mean, this is something that I think about sometimes, yeah. um, and uh, and I think it's just because the desire for Asian women is very wrapped up with this idea of like orientalization and like um where eastern cultures are kind of seen as softer spoken weaker more submissive and you have the idea I, I mean um i've seen stuff like this on um i feel like it's been in the blogosphere or whatever recently there's like a there's like a documentary that just came out called uh, they're also beautiful um and i've seen like articles about like preferences stated on dating sites and i mean it's just when it gets to be like you see people talking about how like uh asian women treat men better or uh you know men looking for asian wives in particular because they expect certain Mm. domesticity that they can't get in american women anymore like not to mention that like asian american women are asian are american women um so I think because of that, and I mean, like, when white men have preferences for black women, um, I mean, I think that is also sometimes problematic. I mean, uh, my my law school roommate is a black woman, and somebody once came up to her and told her he had jungle fever. Like, and that's not Walmart. okay, right? I mean, so it, I guess it depends on how it's expressed also. But I think, like, uh, and I was talking to my roommate about this, too, like, I think because like, black women are undervalued in American dating, um, that there's less of a resistance to that. Um, And I think, yeah, I think it is just the power dynamic that between, like, the white man and the Asian women and the preference for somebody who's just going to um, submit to your will, I think that's the part that's suspect.
0: There's another suspect element, though. I guess it's another way of approaching it. I mean... I, I was thinking about it this way when I've met a met some dude you know a friend of a friend or whomever who, who happens to tell me hey I'm into Asian girls I look I look upon that with suspicion even though I'm just uh, just another white dude because that usually means I mean in my experience I like girls who look Asian like it's a very surface thing mm-hmm. and i especially hate to be seen by these guys as a fellow traveler you know what i mean yeah. like it's and not I, like and
1: i have that same worry about what people think of me and my fiance Oh, really? and also i mean there's like a flip side to this in that like um sometimes asian women who date white men are also looked at, like looked on with scorn mm-hmm. um i think mostly by like asian men and white women but um but there's this element of like oh like you don't like, and I mean, I think like some Asian women also play into this. Like, I know there are Asian women who will say stuff like, "I'm not attracted to Asian men," and I think that's really bullshit. But, mm. um, but yeah, so I, I why, mean, why
0: declare it? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's so I mean, weird. Yeah.
1: I mean, so I think uh, being in a relationship with a white man, like I think about these issues a lot and how we're perceived, and I do gen- generally get more nervous about how he's perceived than how I'm perceived. But mm. it is something that's like not far from my mind.
0: You, you never want to be either of us never want to be seen as like thinking that our own people are not good enough for us
1: yeah and that's weird or like or like thinking like oh well i really value this other culture for reasons that are not necessarily surface too right Right. i mean because a lot of this is also subconscious i doubt that like if you ask most uh men who express it. Preference for Asian women. Most of them are not going to say, "Well, I would rather have somebody who's going to rub my feet." Right?
0: (sighs) Yeah, I mean that's certainly not a part of it. I never thought of. But I mean, I was trying to think of a devil's advocate question a few minutes ago. You know, to say we have this this teacher who's involved with Iris Song's younger sister, and uh, he's got the shelf with only Lolita and the Korean dictionaries. And I wonder, is is there to your mind? I mean, are there? Is it ever legitimate to be? I mean, it makes sense to me when I think somebody is interested in another culture, forget even saying Asia, any other culture, someone's very interested in another part of the world and is in some sense intellectually or otherwise dedicated to learning about another culture. It just fascinates them. It makes sense to me that they would choose a person who is from that culture. No, I mean, that's not necessarily an objectionable thing on the face of it.
1: Yeah, no, that's true, and I ha- and I have heard that before, and I think like this is kind of a sort of case-by-case thing. I mean, I think, like, I don't think it's true that in all of these cases there's something sinister at work. Uh, I think it's often true.
0: Um, Song thinks it's often true. Yeah. Maybe always.
1: Um, I don't know if she goes that far, but I do think it's often true. And I mean, and I think with the teacher and Iris, I also set it up to be, you know, there's this... They're just, like, power differentials in, like, every way. Mm. And I kind of wanted it to be, like, like East-West. Like, there is that, you know, the way we think of um, the East as, like, very Oriental, it's like um, the East is often thought of as feminine and soft, Mm. um, whereas the West is, like, this frontier, manly, whatever, right? Mm. Um, so I wanted to kind of make those contrasts. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's, like, always morally objectionable to have that preference. If, like, if it really is that, like, you went and lived in Japan for, like, five years and, like, you know, communed with all the people there and, like, really felt like you wanted somebody who was, like, as immersed in that culture as you were. But, um, I th- yeah, I, I just the the frequency that happens and um the way that white men talk about asian women when no one's no one knows who they are for instance it's it's just kind of it ends up being kind of suspect
0: mm. and this this affair between the teacher and and iris the younger sister does come to a tragic end and there's is, as you've said, you set it up in in many different ways to look like there's the the power differentials, and there's so, so many ways in which it looks bad, but it seems like song also by the end of the book, reflecting on it thinks it seems like there's a seed of doubt in her mind as to whether she should have intervened is that yeah. is that is that correct
1: yeah, no, that's true um I think uh a lot of this novel deals with her personal guilt mm. about her dealings with her sister um and uh I mean, and you know, you know, um, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Yes. Like that, you know that that is a movie that I watched when I was in college and like really loved. And I kind of like the idea that like if you hadn't gotten your hands into this, like it would have, it could have been so much better, or it wouldn't have been as bad. Um,
0: forget it, song. It's Koreatown. Yeah, and it's exactly. what, not that much happens in Koreatown <laughs> in the book, but I was happy that you got all the things correct of, that are there in Koreatown.
1: Oh yeah, no, I'm very, I, I I've town is one part of LA that I've known since I was a child. It's like the valley places my friends lived and Kreatown.
0: Hmm. The seemingly bad guy in this book, uh, the, the 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 noted lawyer, the, the father of Luke, uh, song's best friend and uh, the one who we think has the mistress Lori Lim, he he is a special target of song's anger because song sees him as potentially fetishizing Lori or fetishizing I guess all Asian women thereby as, as this sort of laying claim to this to this exotic young woman uh, and that word exotic struck me because I think this this character this father is supposed to be in his mid50s mm-hmm. and maybe to him an Asian American like Lori Lim is exotic to to me a 28 year old guy in Los Angeles today a, a Lori Lim is about as exotic as a Buick I mean isn't that's that's going away a bit right i mean generationally that's a big divide right
1: yeah and i mean and this is something that's always struck me as interesting is that um uh asian americans are still seen as kind of this perpetual foreign foreigner um mm. and people ask you know every day like i mean not me every day but asian americans get asked every day like "Oh, where are you from like do you speak Bl- blah 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 or, or uh you know, strangers on the street like to play the guessing game. Like, they're like, are you Japanese? And it's like, this is not a way to start a conversation. And it's weird. And, I mean, I always thought that was especially weird in Los Angeles because there are so many of us. I mean, you see Asians all the time. Uh, I think I might have merged this anecdote somewhere into this book, but there was one time when I was walking in downtown with one of my best friends who's also an Asian woman, and this man rolled down his window as he was driving by us, and he yelled out, Ching Chong ching." Huh? And I was just so baffled by this because, I mean, like, how tired must that guy be if he does that to like every Asian person? He's got to be a hard life. I mean, that's like, I can't think of when I would go around this town and like not see a single Asian person. It just doesn't happen. And so it's weird because we're so much a part of this landscape, and yet, like, we are still sometimes singled out as um, being strange or foreign or other.
0: Right. I mean, but I think, I don't know how old that guy was, but me, I, me I, I wouldn't necessarily necessarily read a Lori Lim as Korean per se. I mean, like, oh, her parents are probably from there, but yeah. she, I think of her as more American. I mean, do you see it change generationally at all? I mean, there's maybe the guys driving by in the car. Maybe they're older. Maybe you have the, the William Cooks, the middle-aged lawyer in this book. But I, I don't know. I feel like younger people aren't maybe maybe they see Asian Americans as Americans foremost now. I don't, maybe that's too bold to say, but.
1: I mean, I think that's probably true for most people. Um, But I do think that, you know, even as our population becomes more diverse and more mixed, um, I think even so, there's still this, kind of almost impulse to other each other and to recognize differences and it's strange and i think it is less in our generation than the previous generation but i don't think it's gone even if it is diminishing mm.
0: there's a novel listeners i recommend you you read as a companion piece to follow her home which is a novel by jay caspian king uh called the dead do not improve it's it's also a modern noir also with a Twenty something Asian American, Korean American protagonist. And at the core of that book is this idea of the anger that is in that, that resides inside the Korean man. I wonder if if you see a similar anger residing inside Song.
1: She's definitely an angry character. Um I say that she's more angry about things that happened have happened in her life and she's very willing to externalize those. Mm-hmm. Um She's not somebody who, I guess, is consumed by our anger, but she is consistently kind of towing that line. Mm. And is she's not a happy person, certainly. Right. Um, and I didn't mean for it to be, like, an anger on behalf of, like, an entire population. But actually, I mean, a lot of it is female anger, certainly. And I guess some of it must be Korean-American. Mm. Um but yeah, I mean, she's definitely somebody who sees things that are wrong with the world and feels personally slighted by them. In this, in, probably in a similar way.
0: How many characters like that do do we have in literature? The ones who who feel like is that, is that a I'm trying to think if that's a common trait in characters or if it's not the the sense that the sense that the uh, what is observed is also personal. Do you know what I mean?
1: I think. Um, that's probably common to a lot of identity novels, actually. Mm. Uh, if you think of like *Invisible Man*, for example, mm. um, or you know any any novel in which the character is part of a group that's kind of marginalized in some way, there's going to be some piece of that. I, I mean, and I have to say that like I'm not, I'm not an angry angry person, but like you know when I pay, the more I pay attention to things that go on and that affect you know especially women these days, but, uh, you know, or any marginalized groups, I get angry. And I think that's kind of a normal reaction. I think, um, not everybody internalizes it and, uh, makes that kind of their normal state, but it's certainly something that's common to, um, I'd say probably, I mean, probably, oh, this is why like feminists are seen as angry, right? Because like, uh, there are things to be angry about if you just pay attention. Um, So I'm, I'm trying to think of specific examples. I mean, I said Invisible Man, but like most, oh, I read, I read, I think, um, I I mean, I'm trying to think of, I guess, novels by people of color. I mean, like Native Speaker has some anger to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I read this post-Katrina Noir called Hell or High Water, uh, which is narrated by, uh, a woman of Cuban descent and, um. There's, some, there's anger there that's an angry character. Um, that's more about sexual violence, I guess. But I think uh, anytime a character is going to take the sins of the world as a slight against family or tribe, there's going to be some anger by definition. And it's not always a bad thing. It's not always, a, you know, there's like the idea of righteous anger. I think, uh, and I'm not saying that all of Song's anger is righteous, but... Um, Certainly some of it is. Hmm.
0: Since you grew up in greater Los Angeles, what what about this place as your hometown did you want to convey in using it as a setting? What, what are the qualities of it, you know, that you've just experienced it as a place? You know, what What do you think was most important to get across in your own experience of here?
1: I wanted to capture the sense of fluidity in L.A., I guess, Maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but I like. Um, I wanted to have like a sense of geography and a sense of movement, and a sense that if you go from point A to point B, you can be in a totally different place in half an hour, even five minutes. Um, and I wanted to get that across um, because LA is such a it's such a great city in that way. Um, there are all these little pockets, and you never know all of them, and uh, you'll continue to find things that are new and interesting. And I kind of wanted that there. I wanted it to be a very geographically concrete novel and also um one that accurately conveyed the atmosphere of la what it's like to live in a city where you get in your car and you go someplace and it's a different place always Mm -hmm. um so i guess that was most important to me i also wanted to make sure that i captured some of the diversity in the city and the people that she talks to and interacts with um you know, there are a lot of Korean-Americans American Korean Americans in this novel, um, and part of that is because there are a lot of Korean-Americans in my life, and it just seemed natural to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, her best friends are white and Puerto Rican, um, and I actually—I I definitely wanted to have um, at least one major Latino character because— I think it's hard to write an LA novel that completely ignores the fact that you know half of the city is Latino. I mean that's the population, and it's true that like the pop um, the populations are kind of segregated in in a way. But um, I think it's just unrealistic to have write for three hundred pages and you never run into somebody mm. who's uh, Mexican. Um, and I explicitly wanted Diego not to be Mexican because I wanted to play with. Um, the way that Latinos like Asians are kind of conflated, mm. um, and I, I guess I, I guess I have like a off-screen character who's Mexican, but um, yeah. So I think that was important to me that there was some diversity um, on top of the you know geography of LA.
0: And it's easy not to come to know a city that's someone's hometown. If, if you grew up here, it's easy to not feel the need to know it but how did you come to know los angeles
1: i mean so i grew up in the valley which is different it's um very suburban um and you know i feel like in my high school life i spent most of it around like the valley i went to the west side sometimes you know hung out on the promenade where a lot of people in high school just hung out um and i knew like k-town because my parents kept going there but I've I mean I feel like I've discovered a lot of LA since like becoming an adult just because you need a car to to discover a lot of LA you need that freedom um so I I mean I feel like I'm still finding out about LA I feel like I'm still exploring new places and learning new things and meeting different kinds of people um and I like that I like that LA just keeps keeps giving um you know, you can't turn over every rock living in the city, and that's kind of nice. Um, but yeah, and I feel like I also came to know LA in the same way a lot of people who've never lived here do. You know, mm-hmm. through 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 movies, through books. Um, I think there is a uh, an artistic vision of LA that rings kind of true in um, the popular culture, and I think like, I mean, I can't say that my actual knowledge of my own city is untainted by that. Um, And I found it to be, you know, I I, I think when you layer um, the fictional and the kind of Hollywood landscape over the real city, you you do end up getting something that's pretty accurate.
0: Hmm. You have to take every layer and put them all on top of each other, and then you see the place itself without, if you're missing any one of them, you're not quite getting the image.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think um, L.A. is notoriously, I mean, it gets a bad rap compared to, say, New York or San Francisco. Um, I think part of it is like it's a hard place to visit because you can't just come and like like I feel like people come, they go to Disneyland, they go to Getty Center and then they leave.
0: Places quite far from the center of Los Angeles yeah. as well.
1: Um and it's not like those aren't great places um but there's just such a breadth to the city that you're not gonna uh you're not going to get much without living here for at least a couple months. Um and really like you don't it's hard to get a real flavor for the city because there isn't one flavor. Um and I mean that's true about most cities, but I think it's especially true about a place like LA that doesn't really have uh one cultural center.
0: It does seem like now tell me if you feel this, but the world has also been discovering Los Angeles this past decade in a way that in certainly in our lifetimes hasn't been happening. I don't know if you've sensed that.
1: I think that is true. Um, Although, to be fair, like, I was not very in tune with uh, images of the city or even other cities 10 years ago. I mean, 10 years ago, I was still in high school. So I... But I, I do get the sense that, like, for instance, like, L.A. dining has been, like, on on people's radars outside of the city in the way that like New York dining has been before. Um, and that's just like one small part of it, but that's true. And I, I mean, I do feel like, um, they're all, there are are constantly good LA novels coming out and, um, obviously Hollywood and, um, you know, anyone who pays much attention to pop culture is going to see images of LA like all the time. And
0: do you see Los Angeles remaining a sort of fruitful source of not just setting, but, any kind of inspiration for you as, as a writer, or is it a place you might want to force yourself away from in future, uh, in near future writing experiments?
1: Yeah, I might I might change my mind on this in the future. I don't really know, but I, I kind of see myself as an LA writer. I think I'll continue about I think I'll continue writing about LA, and I think I'll continue writing about being Korean American in LA. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's peripheral or central to my stories, I mean that might change, but. Uh, I definitely see myself as a Korean-American L.A. writer. I don't think there are so many of those that I need to, like, get out of the way and do something that that has been done before, you know? I feel like mm-hmm. certain kinds of writing are well-covered. You know, there are lots of New York writers, for instance. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I can, I can kind of huddle in this corner, mm-hmm. and I hope, like, I, I mean, and I think, I, I'm not saying I'm the only one, but, like, it's not a super crowded niche. Right, right. right. Um, and I'd like to see it more in fiction, anyway.
0: And you—you you might say, readers are maybe belatedly in the main discovering Los Angeles and Koreanness and the interesting reading possibilities therein. Sort of now, right? I mean, it's—it's it, it, those are in some way that that's this the that city and that. I mean, I would say that place, but it's not Korea they're discovering. It's some, something more ambiguous. Both of those things uh, have a lot of potential that's only getting tapped now, right? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, Anthony Bourdain just did like a Koreatown episode for yeah. a show, which I didn't see, but I plan on watching it. <laughs> because it is like a very particular culture. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not 100% American or even 100%—I mean, it is 100— Okay, I guess what you can say is right. like there's American and within that there's LA. and then within that there is Korean American, but that is not it's not quite the same even if you've never even been to Korea. Mm-hmm. I mean there's there's slightly different norms and um, it's a strangely small world. And um, I feel like when I talk to other people, about family, for instance, who have Korean-American families. Like, I feel like we understand each other a little better, uh, Mm. even though, like, we're 100% American. My my, my parents speak perfect English, Mm. but they're still very Korean in ways that are hard to describe simply, but that I will always be toying with in fiction. Mm.
0: I've been speaking here at the Los Angeles Review of Books headquarters in Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, with Steph Cha, author of The New Los Angeles Noir, follow her home. Steph, thanks so much.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me, Colin.
0: This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can find much more on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. Thanks.